Good morning, church. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. If you're new with us, we've been studying through the book of Revelation for a bit now. We continue chapter by chapter and verse by verse. While you're finding that passage, I want to make you aware of an honor we're experiencing this week at Second Prayers. We're hosting the General Assembly, it's the annual meeting of our denomination called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We're a small denomination, small enough to fit in this church. So we're honored to host this week. And I would urge you from between Tuesday and Friday to come by and watch your church at work. Uh, you'll probably be put to work if you show up, but, uh, and don't eat any food if you haven't registered for it. But other than that, come on in. We really would love for you to see the work of your church. There's a whole lot of inspiration and uh, a little bit of church work, but we're very, very pleased to host our denomination here. Our text, as I said, is in Revelation 7, but the whole of the chapter is in answer to a question that is asked at the end of chapter 6. Just to recall where we've been, we've been touring the throne of God in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, and we've gone around the throne, and we've gone under the throne, we've gone out in front of it, and we've seen especially who is seated on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, chapter 6 ends with this overwhelming picture of Christ seated on His throne in all power in total otherness, in absolute holiness, coming to judge all of His enemies. And though we found great encouragement in these chapters in the past, especially if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we found encouragement there that that Jesus is in charge. But we ended that chapter with a terrifying note. It says, verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and then this question, who can stand? Who can stand in front of the wrath of God that will be poured out from the wrath of the Lamb on all the wickedness of the world? Every human being will stand in front of this judge. Every human being Everyone who has ever lived will stand and give an account. And those to whom he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, will continue on into heaven. And those otherwise will be sent to hell. Who can stand? There are only two ways in Scripture. There's the law of the ways. There is a road that is wide and enticing and is followed by the vast majority. But the end thereof ends in death, the Bible says. But there is a narrow road. A narrow road. Jesus says, if you enter that road, take up your cross and follow me. There, at the end of that road, is hope, eternal life. Who can stand? Here's the answer beginning in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. 
Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, and then 12,000 from each of the other remaining 10 tribes. Verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb... In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. <clears throat> A few years ago, I read an interview with our neighbor here in Memphis, Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer. Lewis in the interview made no apologies for his life. He was described as the rock and roll legend and all around bad boy. The author said his career lasted six decades and was wild, pill popping, heavy drinking, nearly constantly in controversy shot his bass player in the, in the chest, seven wives, last count, native of Louisiana, and as he said, God-fearing Southern family. But one thing remained true. He was always afraid of the judgment day. Jerry Lee Lewis in this interview said, I was always worried whether I was going to heaven or to hell. I still am. I worry about it before I go to bed. It's a very serious situation. I mean, you worry when you breathe your last breath 
Where are you going to go? That's what the Bible calls hopelessness. The opposite of hope that we have in the gospel of Christ. Now consider another life. A common friend that Jerry Lee Lewis and I share. Jerry Lee Lewis is lawyer for many years, was a dear friend of mine. Before he became a Christian, he lived virtually the same life as Jerry Lee Lewis. He also sowed his wild oats. He came from meager, a meager background, worked his way through Vanderbilt Law School and became a very successful contract lawyer for many of the brightest stars in Nashville and in the rockabilly world and in the blues world here in Memphis and eventually in the Christian music world as well. By his early 40s, he had reached the pinnacle of his success, at least as it was defined in his own mind and by his peers. He had more money than he could spend. He had a giant house. He was in all of the middle of the most prestigious uh, social circles of Nashville. He had a front row seat at the Country Music Awards, eventually at the Dove Awards. He was uh, a professor at uh, Belmont and, and uh, was, seemed to be a success. His wife became a Christian. And he saw that she and her new friends had something that he did not have. They had happiness. They had contentment. They had peace. They had joy. They had hope. About that time, God dropped a boulder in his life that brought the bottom up to him, and he cried out to Christ to save him. He became a Christian. He would, continued practicing law, and he tried to bring his Christian faith to bear on his legal profession, and he did, but he knew that there was something else he wanted to do that he should do with the rest of his life. So he sold his house and, and uh, all of the belongings that they had there, and he came to St. Louis to start seminary, and we started on the same day. He graduated at the same time. I went to be a pastor of the church where he was serving as a janitor, and he always insisted that he be called a janitor. He was a janitor working his way through seminary, and he stayed as the janitor of the church I pastored. But he wasn't just a janitor. He said he was a janitor to fund his habits, which were discipling men leading men to Christ, pouring his life into them, teaching the Scriptures, theology, eventually started a, a mission uh, to Eastern Europe after the fall of the, the Iron Curtain. And there he led people to Christ. There he trained pastors, discipled men and women in the faith, but all the while serving as a janitor. Eventually he moved across the country with his family and, and semi-retirement continued in his janitor work and discipling men. Parkinson's, he battled Parkinson's for the last decade of his life, and eventually he was crippled. Eventually he died from that disease, but he died a different man. Though he had lived virtually the same life as Jerry Lee Lewis, he never feared death. He didn't die hopelessly. He died with joy and peace 
What's the difference? It's not because David reformed his life. The difference is not that because David went to seminary. There's only one difference. It's Jesus. One held on to Jesus. The other has yet to. Mr. Lewis, if you are within the sound of my voice, I urge you to listen to the rest of this message and hear the answer that we will all hear as the only way that we can stand. The way that David Ludwig told you about and the way that John tells us about in this passage. We can only stand before the throne of God now and into eternity because of the blood of Christ that saves us, because of the Father who serves us in mercy, and because of the Spirit who seals that salvation to us in love. That first point, that Jesus saves us by His blood, is found in the middle of this passage. It's a Hebrew technique of putting the main point in the middle of the passage in verses 10 to 14. Here is the main point of the passage. Here is the main reason anyone can stand, the only reason anyone will be able to stand before the throne of the judgment of Jesus Christ, and that is by the blood shed by Christ on the cross. The blood shed by Christ on the cross in the place of sinners. He didn't deserve to have His blood shed, but He put Himself in our place that the wrath of God might fall on Him and justly punish sin. And those who cling to Him by faith will have that righteousness substituted to them as their sins are laid on Him. But that blood does something else for us. That blood not only qualifies us to stand before the throne of judgment, that blood, the blood of the Lamb, our passage teaches us, frees us from fear. It frees us from the fear, first of all, of forces and the future. Look at verse 10. Crying out, these were crying out, certain ones gathered around the throne with a loud voice, they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, who is crying out? You have to go back up to verse 9. And the ones crying out are those clothed in white robes, made white by the blood of the Lamb, and waving palm branches. Their robes representing the righteous record that has been put on them, earned by the blood of Christ. They're waving palm branches. Now, where have we seen, where have we heard about people waving palm branches before? Well, from John, in John's gospel, describing uh, what happened on Palm Sunday as Jesus is coming in, the Lamb of God on the back of a donkey. And the children are waving palm branches and they're singing Hosanna, which means save us. Here's the answer to the prayer. The same ones who are waving palm branches on earth are the ones who can wave palm branches in heaven. What is that? What's the signification of the significance of that? It is that you only wave palm branches when you're not afraid of anybody. You don't wave a palm branch in a fight. 
These children are completely unafraid. They should have been afraid. They could have been afraid because the religious leaders around them were trying to get them to stop. Jesus, tell your people to stop. I can't do it. I can't stop them. They're waving their branches in complete abandonment. They're only worshiping the one who they know will save them. And this is the same picture here. These are those who are totally set free from every force that can do them ultimate harm on earth or in heaven. And they're waving their palm branches in complete abandonment before the Lamb on His throne. The blood of Christ that shields you with the righteousness of Christ and enable you to be courageous. You need not be afraid of any force in heaven or hell able to stop you, disqualify you from standing with a clear record in front of the throne of God. You say, I can't wait until that day. You don't have to wait until that day. Yes, the forces of evil can wound you, they can bruise you, they can trip you up, but they cannot stop you from God's agenda for you. So there's no need to live in fear. He frees you from fear, fear of forces. He frees you from fear of the future. You see in verse 12, or verse 11, all the angels were standing around, and they're singing a song. And the song is in verse 12, amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to God forever and ever, amen. Amen is that word that he says God will pronounce at the end of history when everything is just the way he wants it, when all of his enemies are submitted to his feet. But so confident are they that that is going to happen, they start with amen. They don't wait and say, well, let's see if it happens, and then say amen. But they start with amen. They sing praises to the Lord, and then they close with amen. You're able to do the same right now. You're able to sing confidently that Jesus is going to win. That's what the book of book of Revelation is about. You don't have to, you might get mixed up with the numbers and the horns and the heads and the, and the tails and, and, uh, and, and, all the, and all of the symbols and so forth, things falling out of the sky. You may not ever understand any of that, but this is what you can understand. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. We've read the end of the book. Jesus wins. We can say amen. Amen. He's going to win. And you can keep saying amen as a testimony to that. There is no need to become hopeless and frantic and panicked about what's happening around you or what's happening in your culture, what's happening around your world. It, it's, it's bad stuff. It's disappointing stuff. It's wrong stuff. But the end has already been written. You can say, amen, he's going to win. Blood of Jesus does something else. Not only frees us from fear, the blood of Jesus frees us from shame. Look at verse 12 or 13. <clears throat> Who are these clothed in white robes? Here's the catechism question that this elder asks of John. And uh, he knows the answer to it, but John doesn't know the answer. He says, I don't know. I don't know who these people are. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, you know, when I was growing up as a young Christian, people were arguing over when, when, was, this, when was the tribulation coming, going to come. But they only argue about that in America. 
Our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters in some in Eastern Europe, other places where Christianity is illegal, they don't wonder when the tribulation is going to come. They're experiencing it. The tribulation is now. The tribulation is its entire period until Jesus comes. The tribulation are those problems that were, that were spelled out in the first three chapters that occur in those, those churches where Christians refuse to bow the knee to other gods and to other social pressures, and they're thrown out of their guilds, and their, their income is cut, or they're even put to death. And he says, these who take up their cross and follow me, these who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, these who find their acceptance, their, their pardon, their confidence, their assurance from the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who are gathered by the, before the throne. These are the ones who have been freed from the shame the world has tried to impose on them, the shame they've tried to impose perhaps on, their, on themselves before they came under the blood of Christ. These are the ones freed from shame because they're standing guiltless before the throne of the Lamb. It's not just the martyrs. It's everyone who's taken up his cross, her cross, and not only received the gift of pardon of his free grace, but walks under the cross of Christ, finding your relief from the shame that the culture, your own conscience, the devil himself tries to pronounce on you. There is the key. There is the core problem to our cultural difficulties, the inadequate way we are dealing with shame. There's only one way to deal with shame, but there are three possibilities, and I can illustrate them with body language. There are only three ways to deal with shame. Shame is this. You look at something you look at, you, you become aware of something that is broken, that is wrong, that is sinful, that's unjust. Maybe you've done it, maybe you've contributed to it, maybe you've inherited it, maybe you've just become aware of it. But you become aware of it and you react to the shame of it. And you can react this way. You can react this way right here. You can slump your shoulders and pout and wallow in your guilt and self-pity, and it won't change the shame, and it won't do you any good, and it won't do anybody else any good. The other way you can deal with shame is like this. You can put up your fists, and you can punch back, and you say, you're going to make me feel ashamed, I'm going to make you feel ashamed. You're going to say, I'm guilty of something, I'm going to call you a name. You're going to make me aware of something that's broken in our culture? Well, I'm going to label it something which means I can dismiss it. I'm going to react, and you're not going to make me feel ashamed. You know what happens? Nothing. You don't deal with the shame, and you don't do anybody any good. There's a third way. It's the way of the cross. And it's like this. Tell me anything. 
show me anything. Show me the underbelly of sin. Show me things that I haven't known before. Show me the injustice. Show me the wrong. Show me my own sin. Show me where I'm complicit in it. Show me where my forefathers are complicit in it. Show it all to me. And then you turn and you put it on the cross. You lay it at the foot of the cross. And you say, that's why Jesus died. I can't save myself. I can't forgive myself. I can't go back and change the past. I can't change myself even without Jesus. And so you turn and you take it to Jesus. And when you take it to Jesus, you receive from him the resources that are going to change the world. The resources that can release you from your shame and empower you to do what you're supposed to do, to live in obedience. You can take the resources that are, okay, that are sufficient to, to do battle with injustice. You don't need to call that any kind of theory. You don't need to listen to that on a podcast. You don't need to read that in a book. It's in this book. It's the gospel. It's the only way to deal with the reality of shame and the reality of sin, the reality of systemic sin that runs through this world, every part of it, including your and my own hearts. There's only one way to deal with it. And it's only those who deal with it in that way who are dressed in these righteous robes because they're made righteous only by the blood of the Lamb. Second way that we can live with hope, we can stand before the God of justice, the Lamb who will judge the world, and that is we recognize that the Father serves us with mercy. It's not just Jesus who saves us by His blood, but the Father serves us with mercy. Here it is in verses 15 to 17. There they are before the throne. Those worshipers are serving Him day and night in His temple. He sits on the throne. He provides shelter for them in His presence. How in the world can sinful, hypocritical people, broken people, why in the world are they worshiping him day and night because of this? He said, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. What's he talking about? But the mercy of God. God the Father stoops down and takes care of our physical needs and wipes the tears out of our eyes. The Father, the Father who created us, the Father uh, from whom we deserve wrath. The Father who sent His Son for us. This is the Father who stoops. And He helps us physically by His mercy. Now, here's how you get that, verse 16. Verse 16 is virtually a quote from Isaiah 49. And in Isaiah 49, God says essentially the same thing. I'm going to save my people. I'm going to make sure they're not hungry, and I'm going to take care of the thirst. I'm going to shield them from the sun, the scorching heat. He's not just talking spiritually, he's talking physically. And he's talking about people who deserve to be scorched. These are the people in Isaiah who have turned to idols. They've turned their back on God. And God has sent prophets after them. And he turns them back. And he says, you've gotten yourself in this mess. You've gotten yourself cast into exile and so forth. But listen, I'm going to keep going after you. I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to feed you. And I'm going to quench your thirst. 
Here's what you need to do. You need to seek my kingdom. The point is that you, you, you say, I'm not sure that God the Father really loves me. I'm not sure that He would really stoop and help me. I have physical needs. I have physical problems. I have physical deprivation. But it's all because I've done it to myself. I've done it to my health. I've done it by, by poor investments. I've done it because I've, I've lost money in stupid things. Or I haven't budgeted properly. Or I've, uh, I, I've, I've, I've done this in my, in my workplace. I was, I was careless. It doesn't matter. You can't live long enough to be as bad as Israel. And God stoops down to them and says, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to quench your thirst. Just come back to me. And then the father stoops down and he wipes away the tears of our eyes. This is the gospel. People who don't deserve it. Charles Spurgeon said in his poetic way, God keeps three bottles, three bottles of tears. And in the ancient world, you kept uh, liquids that were precious, usually from a stream or something, or ointment. It's precious to your family. He said, God has three precious vials, the tears of your disappointment, the tears of your pain, but the most precious one of all, the tears you shed for Christ. Your tears are precious to Him. Hey, your disappointments... He cares for you. Your pain, He cares for you. But you know what touches His heart as a father? Is when you weep tears for the same things He sheds tears for. When that brokenness, that injustice, that sin that you're a part of or you may not be a part of directly is revealed to you and you weep tears over it as Jesus did. And with tears, you take that and you put it at the foot of the cross and say, heal that in me and heal it through me in this culture. That's the response to this kind of grace. And then thirdly, the only way you can stand is by the gospel which is sealed to you by the Holy Spirit. That's in verses 1 through 4 here, 1 through 9. The work of sealing. The, 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 the work of sealing is, is, uh, is threefold, even in our culture. Something is sealed to assure quality or safety. So you get your Tylenol bottle, you pop the lid, and it's got a seal on it. If it's got a hole poked in the middle of it, you don't need to take it. It may be laced with something. But if it's sealed, it's safe. That's what you find in verses 1 to 3. Here they are, he says, I'm holding back the forces of this earth and of, of things in the future that could, that, could, that could threaten the eternal destiny of my people. I'm not going to let them fall short of standing before my throne in joy and righteousness until, until I have saved every one of them. I've put my seal on their forehead. Second thing a seal does is to reflect ownership. If you have something that's that's precious and it's the, the, the owner's name is sealed on it, maybe even engraved on it. Well, there's everything in in verses uh, four to eight indicating God owns us. 
He's, a, he's an owner. He's, a, he's one who is taking inventory of his people. He numbers every one of them. And, and he numbers even the hairs of our head, Jesus says. Someone who has precious, a precious commodity, makes sure he takes regular inventory. He puts a seal on it indicating that everything is accounted for. Now, there's going to be more, a whole lot more than 144,000. This is a symbolic number. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, feel out, feel, uh, to figure out what this, this number is. You, just, you look at your Old Testament, you see there are 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is a, is a number of completeness in the Hebrew mind. 1,000 is another number of completeness. So when you multiply 12 times 12 times 1,000, it just means you're triply secure. Don't overthink it. 12 is secure. 12 squared is even more secure. And 12 squared times 1,000 is triply secure. God has sealed you. You're His. The third thing a seal does is show uniqueness. Verse 9. This is, you know, sometimes a work of art sealed officially to say this is a limited number. After this I looked, and behold, verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Here is the goal of His redemption, bringing representatives from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation before Him as one people who together reflect the image of God. This is the seal of a truly unique and astonishing work of the gospel. We have a, a commission, that's a, a committee that's going to report at our General Assembly this coming week called the Revelation 7-9 Committee. Our brother Tim Russell was on that committee. Our brother Rufus Smith at Hope Church is a leader in that committee. And they're pursuing, we're pursuing that work because it is mandated to us from Scripture. That the way the gospel will be reflected and revealed as astonishing and unique is that the one with whom we are reconciled, Jesus Christ, manifests the power of that reconciliation on earth by drawing together in an objective and visible way people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God convinces us of the reality of His gospel by reflecting on earth in congregations the complexion of heaven. The devil's against that. The devil wars against that with racism and separatism and segregation. The devil wars about against that because he knows that is the most powerful apologetic for the reconciling power of the gospel. Now, it really was unique. We talk about, we talk about diversity today. We talk about multi-ethnicity today, not because the culture has invented it, but the Christian gospel invented it. It was unheard of in the first century, the first three centuries. It was unheard of that any religion would mix people of different races or tongues or people groups. 
Every people group had its own God, its own deity. Every language group had its own deity. Every nation had its own deity. There was never any question about, about people mingling together who didn't have the same tribe or language or, 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 or historic ethnicity until the gospel of Christ came along. And Jesus dying for the sins of the world, the ethne, the nations, and he draws them into one people group so that they become one new person, one new family. That was revolutionary. It was astonishing. It got the attention of the people around, especially people who said, I've been, I've been jettisoned from that group. I've been excluded from that group. Here is a group that says, it doesn't matter what I look like on the outside. It doesn't matter what I have in my hand. It doesn't matter what I can produce. I come to Jesus, and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. It's astonishing. Is your life astonishing? Is your church, do you want your church to be astonishing? There's another way we can describe the two ways, the two roads, the narrow road that leads to life and the broad way that leads to death. We can describe the broad way that leads to death, the road that most people, most and, 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 and most cultural leaders are on that broad way. We can, I, we can describe it as the yawning way. So that we, if, if you fall in that, that way, that yawning way, that way that, that, that is just the path that everybody else is on, when you die, this is what people will do. Sure miss old Joe. But there's nothing distinct about it. He did go to church. He didn't go to church. But he was just like anybody else. Loved him that way. Never caused any trouble. Fit in. He, he, he belonged to all the same clubs as everybody else. He did what everybody else was doing. He thought about things the way the mainstream did. He voted like everybody else. And he just fit in. Didn't cause any ripples. Miss you. Are you a member of a yawning church? Drive by, there's a church. Just like every other church. They stick with their own. They don't do anything out of the ordinary, don't cause anybody any trouble. They endure over an hour in worship. But they're really like anybody else, nothing different about them. But the person on the narrow way with the cross of Christ. There's going to be a cost to following Jesus. Your people, your people around you are going to say you're a quack. Or they're going to exclude you because your opinions don't morph to theirs. Or you have relationships with people that you, we, don't, we don't associate with those kinds of people. A church that has Revelation 7, 9 as its goal is going to be one that says there will be no credibility to our gospel of reconciliation if it's not seen in the complexion of our congregation. 
And we pursue that, not like the world does, just for symbolism. We do it because only the gospel is powerful enough to make that happen. You may not understand that big word reconciliation. You may not understand that word union with Christ or how it unites us to others, to others but you know this, you understand this. It means to be stuck together. If Christ is your Savior, the Spirit sticks you to Him. And you can't get unstuck. And Jesus may annoy you, and often you annoy Jesus, but you're not going to get unstuck. My daughter's in a church where there are conjoined twins. They're happy. They share organs. They can't be taken apart. But they don't share personalities. And sometimes they get crossways with each other. One doesn't like the other. But they can't go anywhere. They're stuck. We're conjoined to Christ. We're stuck with him. And you're stuck with each other. Now, what's a yawning way to go about that? Oh, they offended me. I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't like it. That makes me uncomfortable. I like my tastes. That's yawning. But what is astonishing is when the Spirit falls with power on a congregation and individuals and says, we are stuck with each other. And we're going to stick with others with whom we're not supposed to stick and prove thereby the stickiness of the gospel of Jesus. There's only one way to stand. Stand up in the gospel. The Jesus whose blood saves you, the Father who serves you, the Spirit who seals you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are relieved to know that there's only one way we can stand on the great day, and that is not by our works, but by the righteousness of Christ. At the same time, we're awed and burdened by the realization that you call us to bear our cross here out of loving response to your grace and take the narrow way no matter what it costs us, but knowing that it will all be worth it when we hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen.